and welcome to the Secretly Society podcast. I'm Fen Lilly, I'm a musician, and I'll be one of your hosts. In this new series of podcasts, we're going to profile a number of different artists and stories from the catalogues of Secretly Canadian, Dead Oceans, Jag Jaguar, or one of our partner labels. For each topic, we'll roll out a mini-series of two to four podcasts, roughly one episode per week, with a rotating cast of hosts, writers and producers, bringing each story to life. This month, we're focusing on one of Secretly Canadian's founding artists, Jason Molina. Signed by Chris and Ben Swanson in 1996, Melina would become an early and prolific flagship artist for the label, releasing classics like The Lioness, Ghost Tropic, Didn't It Rain, and Magnolia Electric Company. But Melina's life was cut tragically short in 2013, when he succumbed to complications from alcoholism at the age of 39. His passing was a devastating blow to all who knew him and or his music, but he left behind a robust and timeless body of work that rewards further examination and continues to grow even in his absence. With this still-growing catalogue in mind, that the focus of the three episodes that follow will be Jason Molina's most recent LP, the posthumously released Eight Gates. Recorded shortly after Magnolia Electric Company's Josephine, the album marks Molina's final studio recordings and came at the beginning of an extremely pivotal year in his life. As we'll see, there was more to Jason Molina than the lonesome chords he transmitted through music, a guarded but gregarious, often comical counterpoint to his personality that those close to him knew and loved. In this three-episode miniseries, writer and producer RJ Bentler will guide us through the story of Eight Gates, and we'll hear first-person accounts from those who were there with Melina at the time, the musicians and engineers he collaborated with, as well as some of the people closest to him at the label. We'll even hear from Jason Melina himself in the form of a recently uncovered archival interview from the period. And that's where we'll start. Here's RJ in conversation with the author who conducted that interview with Jason Melina back in 2010. All right, so I guess just jumping in from the very beginning, can you just introduce yourself and tell me a little bit about your background? Uh, my name is Justin Taylor. I'm the author of three books of fiction, two short story collections, and a novel. And most recently, I wrote a memoir which takes its title from a Jason Molina song. Uh, it's a book about my father and about being a teacher and about family and loss and spirituality. And it's called Riding with the Ghost. The title of his book, published by Random House in 2020, 
is a Molina reference that probably won't be lost on at least some of you listening to this. Borrowing the title from a classic Songs Ohio tune, Taylor's memoir is a heartbreaking reflection on the passing of his father, but should not be confused with Aaron Osmond's definitive Molina biography by the same name. I asked Justin how he had arrived at this title for his book. I came to the title Riding with the Ghost, I suppose, by accident, although in retrospect, it, it doesn't feel that way. I was living in Indiana in the spring of 2017 during what turned out to be the last months of my father's life. And I was just guest teaching uh, at a university there and driving around a lot and listening to a lot of Molina and Magnolia Electric Company and Songs Ohio albums as I drove around. And then my father passed away unexpectedly in March of that year. Flash forward about six months in the fall of 2017. And by that point, I had inherited my father's car. And I spent about eight months, you know, really the first year after his death, again, driving around, listening to music, and now thinking about him and grieving him and and driving, you know, this car that he'd owned for many years. And so it was in that second uh, time period, I guess, that the idea of riding with the ghost became almost too literal. And... So by the time I was hunting for a title, it just, it almost seemed like there really couldn't be any other. But 10 years prior to publishing his memoir, Taylor was a struggling young writer living in Brooklyn. He taught creative writing and literature classes and picked up freelance gigs where he could. He did book reviews and occasionally pitched interviews with authors and musicians he admired. Jason Molina had been on his list for some time, and in 2010, he reached out. I guess I was really surprised at how easy he was to get in touch with. I mean, you know, in, in my mind, you know, he's this kind of towering figure, but I must have emailed Secretly Canadian and just asked if I could talk to him, and I heard back directly from him fairly quickly, and he was super game. So th- thanks for calling. Um, I am completely ready to uh, have you fire away, um, so go for it. Cool. All right. Um, how, do, how did he strike you generally? You know, first impressions. What What did you think? He was he was really affable. You know, he was he was really friendly. He was clearly listening very closely and and really wanted to understand not just what I was asking, but why. And that was that was really exciting. Often, when you're in the role of the interviewer, particularly of someone older and and more established than you, they sometimes have a way of letting you know that you're taking up their time and, you know, they're doing you a favor. And he either didn't feel that way or he was decent enough not to make me feel that way. And I guess I don't know which it was, but I'm grateful for it either way. Around the time of this interview, he had somewhat recently moved to London. You know, based on the interview and kind of thinking back to that time, what was your impression of how he was getting along in London? The impression he presented me was that he was doing well there. I mean, he spoke in very exciting terms, excited terms. He seemed really pumped to have the chance to live in that place. You know, he told me at one point he'd been scouring all the city's bookshops. And so it it seemed like a great moment for him. How is it? Well, it's, it's a cultural study. 
for sure. When I first got here, it was very interesting. I've worked in libraries and museums a lot over mm-hmm. my working life. After scrubbing dishes for so long, I decided that I, I wanted something that was a little bit drier and moldier. <laughs> <laughs> All the museums here are free. And so there are some great, great opportunities for for me to just stand around and, you know, just read history books and and, and look at the at the things in the museum. You know, on the on the cultural side, it's it's unlike any any big city I've ever lived in and I think the last time I counted, I've I've lived in over thirty three different towns. And that's a hell of a lot for someone who's not even forty. What what inspired and, the move, by the way? A combination of, of, of uh me wanting to take a chance and my wife getting a kick ass job. So it was like, Oh, when else is someone gonna pay for you to move? He and Justin seem to have an easy rapport. While there are a number of Molina interviews floating around, he wasn't always a terribly forthcoming or enthusiastic interview subject. This one, though, conducted within roughly a year of the Eight Gates recordings and clocking in at just over an hour, boasts a conversational tone that offers an intimate glimpse at Molina's personality, his sense of humor, and what he was like one-on-one. I'm a huge book collector. I probably have... I don't even want to think, but it's probably approaching two or three thousand books. I can't, I, I've never counted, but the house is full of books and guitars. I, I, I've mined every bookshop that you can imagine in London. <laughs> London's a really good place for books, except for if you like American authors, you find Dick. <laughs> Absolutely Dickens. That's what you find. And that's what I mean by Dick. Right. And, uh, um. Are there particular authors or eras or, or anything that sort of guides your collection, or is it more, you know, just um, well, freewheeling? 19th century American authors, you name them, I, I love them. As far as poetry goes, pretty much I centered on Irish and Scottish poets. I religiously avoid things like Byron and... Uh, a lot of the the big English heavy hitters. Um, How come? Well, they were fucking racist, and it's in their poetry. I'm not going to spend, you know, reading 300 lines and figuring out the meter and getting into the story and then land on this insane racism. I just can't can't do it. Well, aside from his clear and somewhat understandable aversion to Lord Byron's verse, Jason Molina seemed to be settling into London okay. I spoke with Secretly Canadian co-founders Ben and Chris Swanson, who released the vast majority of Molina's catalog and were close with him throughout his life. Here's how Chris remembers Jason's transition to London. Jason loved old things, as a rule. And, you know, I, I toured for seven weeks in Europe with him and seeing him in, in the land of, you know, ancient buildings and, and, and real, real history relative to, to uh, the U.S. You know, he was a student of history and he, he was like a kid in a candy shop in, in the old world. I feel like being in London, it, it definitely, I'm sure it, it, it was striking a lot of synapses in his imagination in terms of what, what mythologies to 
invoke in, in his songwriting. But I, my f- memory of him at that time is he seemed just very lonely. Manish Agarwal was the Secretly Group's UK publicist at the time and worked closely with Molina. The Swanson brothers suggested I speak with him for this story, citing Manish as a kind of kindred spirit to Molina and someone with whom Jason clicked effortlessly. Yeah, we, we clicked, we bonded. I, it, it, wasn't hard to be, um, it wasn't hard to be friendly with Jason, but I would never say that we were friends, if that makes sense. I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that Jason didn't make close friends in London. London is a difficult city to just to just to come to. It's it's big. It, it's an impersonal place. Once you get to know people, they're friendly, but they don't go out of their way to get to know you. Everybody is guarded, and I think he struggled with that. Around this time, secretly Canadian co-founder Ben Swanson made his way to London to visit Jason. If he was struggling to find friends in London, he was evidently finding other ways of occupying himself there and treated Ben to a distinctly Molina form of tourism. The first time I visited Jason in London, I had arrived that morning at like 6 a.m. local time. And he had told me to meet him in Portobello Road somewhere, some cafe. And... I shuffled my way there, and he was there ahead of schedule waiting for me. And I thought we were, you know, just going to have a coffee, and I could then, you know, go to the hotel and just, like, get a nap. But we proceeded to walk around London for, like, four to six hours. You know, it was just like a monologue. It would just go from one location to the next. So you'd have a coffee and be like, let's walk down the street to Rough Trade. And you'd walk down the street, probably the the long scenic way to Rough Trade. And he would be talking the entire way, pointing at stuff. And all along the way, we would pass the building and he would point at it and be like, that's the building where that person died. And that's the building where that writer wrote whatever masterpiece. And it was just anecdote after anecdote of cultural history of London with musicians and writers and from anything from 300 years ago to three years ago. And it was fascinating and exhausting. Uh, what's what's hilarious about it is Jason was the king of the uh, Irish goodbye, or you know, or the Lakeshore exit, uh, where he would just he'd be monologuing at you for an hour, and then just on a dime, being like, "Well, okay, adios." Always seemed deeply unfair. It's like you've held me here, and you just get to leave, and like like that, like I could have done that. Is that how the tour ended? Pretty much, he'd be like, well, okay, I gotta go do something. I'll see you later. And it was just, and it would just end. Craig Norman, an engineer and friend of Molina's from Chicago, was also treated to a Molina guided walking tour when he arrived in London to engineer the sessions that would become Eight Gates. Here's how he remembers it. Yeah, certainly when I arrived, um, 
after I we dropped off all of my stuff, we went on like a, a big day-long walk through London. It was early in the morning and uh, we were going to meet up with uh, his wife Darcy later for dinner. And so we had the whole day to kill, nothing really to do. So we just went walking and he took me all around. And he'd always have some anecdote about wherever we were. And I was a history buff and he knew knew that. And we'd just be wandering through some sort of, you know, courtyard and he would just say, oh, oh this is where like a giant bomb exploded and killed 200 children <laughs> and full serious, you know, face. And it's like, oh, well, that's sad. That's that's coincidence. Now, one thing I've heard from pretty much everyone I've spoken to about Jason Molina is that he was a bit of a storyteller and that the veracity of Molina's anecdotes on these tours and beyond could be somewhat questionable. How far was he stretching things? Was it like mostly believable or? Yeah, no, it would, it would be nothing he, he said was like supernatural or anything. It's like there wasn't any dragons or magic or anything, which would have been fun too. I asked Manish Agarwal if Jason's English friends were ever a party to these Molina-guided tours. Uh, he didn't do it with me, but that's because I lived there myself. And so I guess I guess he wouldn't he wouldn't presume to tell. He probably borrowed some of your stories and uh, you know, embellished them a bit. Could be, could be. I think I think back back in uh, the day, Time Out London magazine uh, had a weekly uh, little feature that they called Lies to Tell Tourists about landmarks in London where you just just make something up about, you know, and this is where Sherlock Holmes bought his heroin back in the day. <laughs> and uh, I think I think Jason was a, a walking embodiment of that service, if, if we can call it that, that tourist service. Because the city itself seemed to have given up, had given up on on that romance and that that mythology and history. So it would make sense to me that, that one of its more literary, romantically inclined new residents would try to revive that storytelling uh, tradition. Greg Norman had a similar idea. It gave me the idea actually for a, uh, a business where like, you know, there's these architectural boat tours here in Chicago. They're actually really interesting and you learn a lot about Chicago history, but I thought like it would be much more fun if you just had a guy, maybe an improv comic, making up all this bullshit about like what the, what happened where in the city and just sort of pointing out buildings. I think that's, that's kind of where I got the idea, idea was from hearing Jason sort of like improv up some cool anecdotes about London. But yeah, I couldn't tell if he was, you know, fucking with me or what, but... You know, I would hear from other people like later on that they got the same kind of tour that was sort of like curated for their interests as well. Like another friend who was into, you know, gargoyles and he knew where to go. He would bring them to the buildings with the best gargoyles. And, it was, you know, you could tell he had done a lot of walking and investigating on his own. So like there was it wasn't a it wasn't a bad tour. It was a great tour. <laughs> it was a great day. And I was exhausted. By all accounts, Molina did do quite a bit of exploring and investigating on his own. One particular point of interest for him were the ruins of London's ancient wall, and more specifically, 
the mythology surrounding the wall's gates. Here's Ben Swanson. My understanding of the London Wall is that it was built around Roman times to secure London after Rome had sacked and taken over London, and that there were multiple gates to get into London, you know, for security or whatever. And, you know, there's tube stops named after him now, like Highgate is one of them. My understanding there is actually, it's a little bit disputed how many gates there are, but I think it's Generally, there were seven gates. I am not a historian, uh, but my understanding is that there is a disputed eighth gate. And my interpretation of that with Jason is that, uh, you know, he took the more creative route with, with the record in talking about eight gates. Molina was quite taken with this disputed eighth gate. Playing as he often did on mythology, he titled his only studio recordings from his time in London, Eight Gates. It's a collection of songs filtered through his experience and surroundings at the time, as we'll explore in greater detail later in the program. As any fan of Jason Molina knows, location, history, and mythology, the ghosts of the past, are familiar themes in his work. But hearing the stories of these Molina-guided tours of London and getting a sense of his personality in the interview with Justin Taylor, I was struck by the distinction between the darker themes employed in his music and the ways in which his love of mythology seemed to extend to a penchant for tall tales. More on that after the break. Mm 